And now this morning, we're going to do what we did last week. And as we approach God's word, we're going to have a song of meditation or preparation. And uh, some of you will be familiar with with this one. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful song called um, Breathe on Me, Breath of God. And it's really going to speak to some of what we're going to see in Ezekiel uh, 37 today. So Scott, go ahead and pull up that video, brother. Just let the words, just meditate on the words as you sit. our prayer as we come before God and his word in Ezekiel chapter 37 this morning. And I'm going to invite uh, Charlie and Judy Stabilepsi forwards to read. You guys can come on up and hear the word of the Lord. We'll be right in Ezekiel 37 and I believe the 860 in the few Bible. So. Good morning. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. 
And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place in you, and I shall place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not let us what you mean by these? Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Charlie and Judy. 
<clears throat> Some of you will remember, I think it was like last September that we started this series and we kind of began with that, that image of, of dry bones. And I told this story of, you know, kind of getting you to imagine walking through the woods and stumbling across um, a pile of bones and what that would make you feel like if, if that happened. What would you think of? Some of you may remember that last September. So we've started with this image and we're going to almost wrap up our series on Ezekiel with this image. We've got just a couple of more weeks uh, in the book. But what I want to start with is this idea of symbols. You should think about symbols. Symbols are all around us. God made us to see beyond things themselves. He made us so that we can see deeper meaning in ordinary things. Take, for instance, this room. Look around and you will see meaning hidden in various details of the room. The height of the ceiling gives you a sense of bigness, wonder, transcendence. It draws our thoughts upwards, maybe more so than it would if we had a low ceiling. Take the placement of the pulpit being raised a bit above the floor. What is that saying? Now, what of the altar being raised a bit above even the pulpit and even above the other things in the room? What is that saying? What is it saying that the cross is in full view here at the front of the sanctuary? And what of the colors of the textiles, what we call paraments? What is being said there? One could even say that the overall basic, straightforward design of the church building, this simple box, by not having all kinds of distracting decor, is also saying something. And what it's not saying, right? All around us, there's meaning beyond the things themselves. When we see the rising and the setting of the sun, when we see the change of the seasons, there is meaning. We think of the coming of fall as this idea of death, right? And only to be born again in the spring. These are things that are have meaning. Darkness and light, desert and stream. These are not just physical realities. They are preachers telling us something. The scriptures say that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The Bible says that marriage between a man and a woman is a living parable of the gospel. Meaning in these images and symbols. All these things all around us are real, real things, yet also show us something beyond the things themselves, do they not? Even kids get this when they draw a heart on Valentine's Day. Maybe your kids or grandkids or maybe you have nieces or nephews or neighbors who give you a Valentine's Day card, right? And what do they do? What do they often might draw on there. Draw a heart, right? Might draw some hearts. What does that symbolize? They're saying they love you, right? And they care about you. Symbols have such power. And this is all around us. And today in our passage before us, God gives Ezekiel another vision. And this is the third grand vision God has given Ezekiel up to this point in the book. And he's given a vision of dry dead bones. 
And if it were just a tour of some random valley filled with bones, that would be rather uninteresting. And we would be like, what is that all about? But God tells us these are not just any bones. In verse 11, he tells us, quote, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. These are my people. But we know that the whole house of Israel is not dead, right? Ezekiel certainly is alive and he's a member of the house of Israel. Sure, many of the people of God perished in the fall of Jerusalem, but many are living in exile. So what is God saying? What is God saying? Verse 11 continues on. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off, it says in verse 11. These bones are a picture, a symbol that is telling us something about the people of God. Their hope is cut off. They have no life in them. Spiritually, they are dead. And we know from the stories that we have heard over the previous many weeks why this is. We know what's being said here or why what has gotten them to where they are. For many years, they've worshipped false gods. They've listened to false teachers. Their nation has been captured. Their temple, their worship, their city have all been destroyed. They live in exile. God no longer dwells with them as he did before. And it appears that the promises that God made to them have failed. Ergo, valley of dry bones. So the Lord likens his people to a valley of dry bones. What a dreadful image. What a dreadful image. One would be hard pressed to think of a worse image. What if someone described you that way? I would feel pretty bad. You're like, that's not good, right? This is a dreadful image. Yet that is where God's people are here in Ezekiel. And I would say in many respects, this is, that is where the church in our land is today as well. A valley of dry and dead, lifeless bones. And God puts a question to Ezekiel right at the start of the vision. And he puts the question to us this morning as well. Can these dry bones live? He asks, can they live? And what we'll see is, yes, yes, indeed, they can live. So this is where, again, the last few weeks we've seen Ezekiel starting to take more of a positive turn. We've heard a lot of hard words from God these previous few months. But in the last few weeks, he's starting to um, to indicate things are going to be better and goodness is coming. And what we're going to see again is, yes, these bones can live despite the past, despite the sin, despite the turning from God and the repeated idolatry and so on. Despite the current hopeless situation, these bones can live. And God is going to show us in this passage what it takes for dead, dry, lifeless bones to live. It's going to give us a glimpse of what he, how he does that. How he brings life to dead, dry, and lifeless bones. So here's the big idea I want to try and uh, convey to us uh, this morning through God's word. Because God is able to bring the dead back to life, we must always have hope. Because God can bring life from death, we must always have hope. 
If God can turn a situation around like the one here in Ezekiel's vision, a valley of dead, lifeless, dry bones, he can turn anything around. And of course, we know from the ministry of Jesus that this is precisely what God loves to do. Repeatedly, we see in Jesus hopeless, desperate situations being turned around by Christ in dramatic ways, even instantly. He can breathe new life. But here in this vision of Ezekiel's, Uh, God is going to give us something very interesting. He gives us, as it were, he pulls back the curtain a little bit and gives us a glimpse into how it is that he's often pleased to work. How he does this miracle. And we're going to see, I hope as we go through, that he's pleased to move the very same way today. Right? That it's not as though God is moving differently then than now or now than then. Same God working in same way today as he was then. In other words, the phenomenon that we see happening here in this vision will give us a glimpse into how the Lord is pleased to work every day in our lives. I hope this gives us hope. That's my prayer. This should give us hope. Like faith, hope has an object. Hope is in something. Psalm 42.5 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Hope in God, right? Hope is in something. It has an object. And of course, for us, our hope is in God. But hope in God is different from the kind of hope that we normally speak of. How do we normally use the word hope when we think of hope? We normally use hope as when we have some kind of uncertainty, right? Some kind of doubt or there's some question or issue that we're not sure the outcome. For instance, we might say, I hope that storm misses us, right? We say that a lot around here. (laughs) I sure hope the roads aren't too bad today, right? It's that time of year where that's on everyone's mind. Or I really hope you get to feeling better soon. Right? We're, we're expressing our desire, our longing, but we can't be sure of it. Right? We don't know because we're not in control of these sorts of things. It's basically a way of expressing some kind of uncertainty about the future. Right? I know you may not feel better, but I sure hope you, you do. We may get hit with that storm, but I hope not. Right? But biblical hope, hope in God, is different. It's not just a desire for something good in the future. It has a confident expectation as well and that confident expectation is rooted in god that god is going to do the things he said he's going to do that we're relying on god's character and his person and his word and his promises right that god works in the ways that he told has told us he works and so this is not a a cross your fingers kind of hope right Like we might say, again, with the storm or something. I sure hope that storm passes. Or a flip of the coin kind of hope. This is an assurance, a confidence in someone, namely God. That is biblical hope. And what I desire for us to see here this morning is that this hope recognizes certain facts about the way God moves in the world. Because when you're like 
Ezekiel or like us today in the modern church and you look around and you see many reasons to be concerned. You see life, lifeless, dry bones. You see valleys. You see death. What is your reaction? If you're like me, and I'm assuming probably like Ezekiel, what's running through his head, you want to do something. You feel this sense of what can I do, right, to, to make this right? You want to try and change it. You, you want to work and strive and labor so that the bones might live. So what I want to do today is to give us some thoughts about what hope-filled spiritual work in a valley of dry, dead bones looks like. And I've got three points to share with you. Three points that I see in the Word today. And the first point is always have hope in God's word. Okay, And behind, of course, I'm going to speak of, of, of hoping in other things. But behind these things is God, right? This is all built upon God. So always have hope in God's word. Psalm 119.81, which we heard read just a few moments ago in the service, says this. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. There it is, right? So we see hoping in God. We see hoping in the word. And the reason really we can hope in the word is because behind the word is God. It's his word, right? He has spoken it. He is faithful. He is true. And he goes on, the psalmist does, to explain how he's in a difficult spot. He's become like a wineskin in the smoke, it says. And he says, when will you judge those who persecute me? In other words, when are you going to Deal with these people who are giving me trouble, God. When are you going to help me? So he's in a trial, dealing with a tough situation. But he finds hope in what? Hope in the Lord's Word. In God's Word. Because that Word has promised something to him. And that Word has promised him deliverance. It's promised him that he's going to be saved, right? God has said, I'm going to save you. I will keep you. God has promised him that this terrible situation won't go on forever. Might go on for a long while, but it will not go on forever. God will deliver. And this writer knows that because God has told him that. He's given him his word. So he hopes in it. He trusts in it. He trusts in God. God's going to do what he said he's going to do for me. I believe him. I trust him. And one thing that we see throughout Scripture is that God's Word is trustworthy, certainly, right? But not only that it's trustworthy, because behind it is the God who is trustworthy, but it's also living and active, Hebrews 4.12. Let me give you a few references, maybe, if you want to write down and chew on in your own time. Hebrews 4.12. The Word is living and active. It pierces right to the very bone and marrow, deep down inside. The word is creative. It's, it's a, um, it says in Genesis 1 that you know, God spoke and it was, right? And there was light and there was all the things that we see in the world. It's creative and powerful. We read that God's word was always uh, or always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. This is in Isaiah 55 verse 11. It says, I send out my word and it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. We read that the words of God bring forth life. John 6, 63. For these words, Jesus says, that I'm sharing with you are spirit and life, he says. 
The word brings life. We read that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. So these are things about the word we can bank on. We know from from God telling us so. Look with me now at verses 1 through uh, 10 in Ezekiel 37. In this portion of the vision, Ezekiel is told to speak the word of God, to prophesy over the dry bones. In other words, God gives Ezekiel a word and tells him to share it. And Ezekiel is obedient and does that. Verses uh, 4 and 5. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. In other words, Ezekiel is asked to do what on the surface seems completely pointless. These are dead bones, God. Many of them. And they're very dry, it says. Very dry. He's talking to dry, dead bones. Sometimes, you know, when we share the words of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, perhaps that's in our head. This is a waste of time. Is this pointless? This person, maybe they've heard this before, they've rejected it. I don't, I don't see this going anywhere. You ever had that thought when you're trying to talk to someone about the Lord? Well, some of what you're getting a taste of in that moment is exactly perhaps what Ezekiel felt. The good news Um, about Jesus, when we share that with others, this is precisely the task we are engaged in. Because the Word tells us in places like Ephesians 2, verse 1, that everyone that comes into this world is dead. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. We can't revive them. We're speaking to lifeless, dead, dry bones. What that means, of course, there in Ephesians 2 is spiritually dead, spiritual death. Just like here in Ezekiel's vision, it's showing us a a picture of spiritual death. When we look at our neighbors who don't know Jesus, they have physical life. Their heart is beating. Their minds are functioning, right? But Scripture says that until they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are dead, spiritually dead, do not have the life of God in them. It's no different than speaking over the valley of dry bones as Ezekiel was. But what we have here is a clear picture of what God does to bring people to life. How God revives the dead. And what we see in this first section here is that God is pleased to use his word to bring dead, hopeless sinners to life. This is why we hear the word over and over and over. Sunday after Sunday. What did Jesus say in Matthew 4? In the wilderness, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is our life. If there is to be revival in our churches and in our land, it will not be apart from the preaching of the word. It will not be apart from the love of God's word. It will not be apart from the sharing of the words of God. That is what we see here. Oh, how often we fail to share God's word or study God's word because we doubt its power. We doubt that God will use it. I'm guilty of this. But I'm convinced more and more as I struggle through and slog through 
life and ministry, at home and at the church and the community, that if there is to be a working of God in anyone at any time or at any place in the world, it will only be through the word of God. We are called and commanded to be a people of the word, to be students of God's word and to share it as we have opportunity, even when it seems as though we're standing and talking to lifeless, dry bones. Once again, we see Ezekiel does what he's commanded over and over. We've seen this theme throughout this book. Ezekiel is faithful. The Lord says, do this. And he does it. He does what he's commanded. He looks out over the bones, declares the words that God gave him to declare. And in verse seven, we read. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. We should always have hope, always have hope, a confident expectation that God will use his word, even when it seems pointless. Because that's what we see right here in his word. So that's point number one. We should always have hope in God's word, that it is working and accomplishing the purpose for which he sends it. But we also see from this passage that the word of God must be accompanied by something else if it is truly to be effective. Right. This is not a magic trick. Say the right words, you know, read, read the right thing, say the right thing and suddenly life comes. No. There's something else If it is to truly be effective and have power. It needs to be accompanied by the spirit of God. And that's point number two. Always have hope in God's spirit. That God's spirit is working and loves to use the word and is pleased to take the word and use it to bring life. We see this in verses 7 through 14, but let's look specifically at verses 7 through 9. So I prophesied as I was commanded in it, and as I prophesied, there was that rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. The word there in the Hebrew behind breath is the word ruach. This word can also mean spirit. When we hear Holy Spirit's ruach hakadesh, Holy Spirit. This word is the same word used of the Spirit of God. And we're seeing here that apart from the Spirit of God, new life, spiritual life, cannot come. Cannot come. Think of a seed in the soil. If it's to grow, it needs certain elements. Water, oxygen, the right temperature to germinate and grow. Maybe some of you are reminded of the words in the New Testament where Paul says, right, some plant and some water. God gives the growth, but they all got to be there, right? The seed has to be planted. The word has to be spoken. Okay, the spirit has to come and water it. But God ultimately, through his spirit, gives the growth in a similar fashion, just like that. If sinners like you and me are to live like that seed, we must not only have one thing or the other thing, we must have God's word and it must be joined with God's spirit. Verse 14, I will put my spirit within you 
and you shall live. Apart from the Spirit, there will be no life. Now, some of you know the story of Nicodemus uh, in the Gospels in John chapter 3. And you might argue this is perhaps the most famous conversation ever. In the history of the world even, perhaps. This is where the famous John 3.16 uh, is said, is in this conversation with Nicodemus. And he's a Jewish teacher. And he comes to Jesus in the night with all kinds of questions. And one thing that Jesus says to him in that fascinating conversation is this. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And Nicodemus says to him, how can, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into a, his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What can we take from this? There's a lot to take out of that, right? We could do a couple sermons on that passage alone. Without the Spirit of God, one thing we can certainly take away is you will have no life. You will remain spiritually dead. You will not be able to enter the kingdom of God. You will remain separated from Him unless the Spirit comes. Okay? Another thing we take away is that we don't know when the Spirit of God is going to move. Jesus says it blows where it will, here and there. There's a mystery here. Some of us who are maybe the calculating types, I know there's some of you out there i'm a little like this sometimes you might see this as a deterrent from sharing the truth with others well pastor you've told me to share the word and i want to share the word but i'm not sure the spirit's going to move so why should i share it right some of you are maybe calculating or thinking that way i can't guarantee i don't know so therefore i'm not going to share because the spirit blows where it will i have no control over it right but that's a glass half empty approach, isn't it? A glass half full approach, which I think we can be optimistic as believers because our God is on the throne. We should be optimistic. We should be glass half full people, right? A glass half full approach says this or sees the same thing and has this and has and sees the same rationale, but as a motivation to share rather than to avoid it. Right? Because God may come. God may bless it. You never know. These dry bones might just live. You never know. I'm going to. So I'm going to share. I'm going to pray that God's spirit moves. And I'm going to give my all. And pour myself out for the Lord. And we can rest assured. And be confident. That when the spirit of God comes and works. He will overcome any obstacle. He can bring life to dry dead bones and that's where the hope comes from that truly nothing no situation is impossible for god that should give us hope right because we we know god can move and work he can bring people even back from the dead so that's point number two when the word is proclaimed and the spirit of god moves there is life so we should be hopeful when we share. And we should be prayerful that God's Spirit will indeed move. And that leads to point number three. 
always have hope in God's promises. We've already touched on God's promises a little here and there. But we're going to end here. Always have hope in God's promises. The major promise we have here in this section is that the original question God puts to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live, is answered with an emphatic yes. They can live and they will live. All of God's people, none will be snatched out of the Lord's hand. All will live. Everyone who comes to Christ in repentance and faith will ultimately live. And of course, here the people in Ezekiel's time are looking forward to Christ. We're looking back on his uh, coming. But this is our hope, right? In the midst of the valley of dry bones. Not only that God can make them live, but that God has made promises to us as well. Promised certain things. Right? This is not like, again, across the fingers. Well, I hope Jesus comes back. No, he's coming back. He's going to save everyone. He's going to build his church. Right? He's going to save his people. He's coming back. It's not a maybe. He's given us promises like people from every tribe and tongue will come to Jesus before the end of time. That's a promise. Not an empty hope. Promises like Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. No matter how bleak it looks sometimes. These are promises. We should have hope because of these promises. I want to talk briefly a little bit more about what's going on in Ezekiel 37. So for this final point, we'll look at the second half of our passage in verses 15 on right to the end. Again, I'm not going to read all of that. But what we have in this section here is God's promise to Israel to bring them back into the land. So if we're reading in context, contextually, right, we can always just sort of cherry pick, you know, pieces out of the Bible that sound good or feel good to us. But we need to be careful to uh, try and read them in context and understand what it's saying in, in context, yet also realizing that perhaps there is deeper meaning there for us. All right, so what's being said here to Israel is that God is going to bring them back into the land and they will be one stick, right? He will take Ephraim and Judah they, who've been separated and exiled and conquered by foreign nations and you know, divided. They're going to be one stick and be brought back together in the land. And they will dwell under the rule of one king as one nation. And he will give them his spirit and they will walk in his commands. And God will make with them a covenant of peace. And he will once again dwell with them. These are all promises that are made to the people of Israel uh, here in this section. And of course, these promises have been made to them in other places as well in the Old Testament. All right, let's look at verses uh, 27 and 28. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Okay, so those are promises to Israel, but they have something to say to us as well. Remember, the very dramatic moment back in Ezekiel chapter 10 when the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. You remember that? Those of you who've been following along in Ezekiel, right? The glory of the Lord left the temple. Now here we have a promise that God will once again dwell with his people. 
This was the original hope of Israel, that God would be with them and among them, that God would be their God and he would dwell with them. These promises would have sustained them through the coming decades in exile, and eventually they would go back to the land and would rebuild the city and the temple and its walls, and worship would be restored. This happened, okay? But as New Testament people, we must see through these promises made originally to Israel and see something for us as well. There's a lot of debate about what this means for Israel today in New Testament times. I'm not going to get into that interesting theological wrinkle. We'll talk a little bit about that in the in the uh, last uh, as we wrap up the series on Ezekiel. But as New Testament people, what I'm going to say for us today is we must see through these promises made originally to Israel and see something there for us. All the promises of God are yes and amen for us in Christ. God was going to come and dwell among them. Think about it this way. In an unexpected way. How is God going to come and dwell amongst Israel in the future? How is that going to happen? Well, we certainly know that he was going to come in the person of Christ, right? That is what we as New Testament people know. He was going to come in a very unexpected way, a way perhaps that most of them were not looking for. God was going to build a new temple and it was going to be filled with the presence of God in that temple. Not only for Israel to meet God, but all the nations to meet God in this temple. What was that temple? Who was that temple? Let me put it that way. He was going to come down himself in the person of Jesus Christ and die for sin. If you remember in the New Testament, Jesus says, tear this temple down and I will raise it again in three days. He's speaking of his own body himself. He was the new temple. And in Christ, all the nations were going to meet God there. He is now the locale, the place, the person in whom we meet and know God in him. This is what their whole system was pointing towards. The temple, the sacrifices, the law, all of it point forward to one who was to come, namely Jesus. And his promise to everyone who believes in him is eternal life, that your sins will be forgiven and you will have new life with God. Israel had to endure the agony of having their temple destroyed. Well, Jesus came as the temple and was destroyed for us that we might have a way to know God and be reconciled to him in his in his person. Jesus said, the enemy comes to steal and kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus offers you this life today in Christ. This is where the rattling of the bones and the sinews and the skin, all of those things we read about here come together and new life is born in the person of Jesus today. So no matter what your circumstances are, this is hope. It's not a promise to fix all of your earthly problems. Okay, I want to clarify. It's not what God is promising you. But he is promising you to fix your deepest problem. And to meet your deepest needs. That you will have a new reconciled relationship with God. That you will be born again and be a new person. And live with God in fellowship and harmony forever and ever. That's a rock you can bank on. That's a promise he has made. This is not a cross your fingers hope. No matter what's going on out here. 
that's a rock beneath your feet, people, that you can trust in. Something you can have a confident expectation of. Trust in Christ. And no more will you be dead, dry bones. You will have life eternal. Amen. Let's pray together now as we turn to uh, God in a final song here. We lift our voices to him. Lord, um, I know this is, uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot going on and perhaps in, in our minds and in our hearts right now as we hear a message like this and, and maybe even a lot of questions and there's a lot of things that um, have gone perhaps unanswered. Uh, I know there's a lot of details and theological stuff going on here that's quite complex and at least to me, I, I feel like I read the word sometimes and, and there's so much happening. But your basic point, I believe, this morning is that there's always hope in Jesus. Come to Jesus. There we meet God. There we know God. There we hear God. There we experience God in Jesus. And if we come, we will have this new life. I pray, Lord, that that would be clear to anyone that's listening that may not understand these things. Holy Spirit, take these words and apply them to their hearts. And now, for all of us, many of us perhaps who've walked with Jesus for a long time and treasure you and love you, Lord, as we think about what this means for our lives, let us be reminded that this is a work of God. This is your work, ultimately and most deeply. And so our strength is in you. So now as we turn to to a song, yet not I, but through Christ in me, let us be reminded to find strength and hope in you, not in our own strength or in our own self. In Jesus' name, amen.